Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Bruce Hammack, who's Professor of Entomology and Nematology at the University of California, Davis. His research interests span immunochemistry, insect research, and mammalian research. Welcome, Bruce. Very glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I know that you are doing a lot of very, very interesting things. Um, and I want to start with one of your research uh, interests, which is insect biology. And I'm on your website. You say insects can have extremely detrimental effects on human welfare, primarily in terms of their ability to damage food fiber crops and their ability to transmit disease, not only in humans, but also livestock and plants used by humans. So um, I can tell you that, you know, uh, Having grown up in a developing country most of my life, uh, this is always a problem. <laughs> Insects are a, a major issue. Um, so, so what's our current understanding, and do we have interventions that are useful in this context? What I spent most of my insect career on was regulatory biology and development of insects. So, a guy named Carl Williams at Harvard many years ago came up with the idea that the insect endocrine system seems to evolve relatively recently compared to the nervous system. So he hoped that we could disrupt insect endocrinology, our model development of insects, and have high, a high level of selectivity. So I started out in graduate school trying to isolate insect hormones and then making chemical mimics of them. So this was done at several startups, but also in the lab I was in at Berkeley. And actually, the insect hormone mimics that we worked on in the 70s are still on the market. So in, um, in medical entomology, they're used to control mosquitoes, for example, that vector encephalitis, malaria, and so on. But 
but they're also used somewhat in real field and row crop insects. They are not major pesticides, but they've been important pesticides since the 1970s and remain so. They are flea collars, they're used in the home, and they are very, very selective. But we're also often looking at what we would call therapeutic index in medicinal chemistry. And the toxicity of these insect hormones to, uh, to mammals is measured in the thousands of milligrams per kilogram. So they're extraordinarily potent to an insect uh, and very, very safe as far as mammalian uses. The next thing we moved into was trying to use genetic engineering. And with that, we it sounded a little frightening, but we isolated the, the venom of scorpions, particularly old world scorpions, which tend to have mixtures of venoms where each individual toxin is specific for one source of food or one predator. We isolated a toxin that would only kill insects. And then we cloned this into a virus that would only infect insects. So we took what was a good natural control agent, the virus, but it actually the virus being a very smart virus, tricked the insect into growing bigger and better and eating more food so it would produce more virus. So that's a great biological control agent, but it's not so good as a pesticide. So we turned it into a quick kill virus that would infect the insect, make the scorpion toxin, kill the insect, and then the virus would become extinct. So we would have to reintroduce the virus every year. So this got into field tests for five years in the U.S., uh, but it was never really used very much. Mm -hmm. However, it was used uh, quite a bit in China. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. Um, it, is, it is sort of uh, in the vein of artificial intelligence. As they create an agent that goes in and does something, and that agent cannot really replicate, so that the virus, right? So the, when the end outcomes are accomplished, the agents also disappear uh, in the context, which is really, really a beautiful, beautiful way to tackle the problem, I think, right? This was, was really fun. We started out, you know, you can never prove anything is safe. So we tried very hard to prove, prove that the recombinant virus was dangerous. And one of the worries was that it would get loose and replicate in the environment. And it would drive some species to extinction. But in, in this way, we could only make the virus in the laboratory. It would work for one generation in the field and then would absolutely vanish. Yeah, so um, so, so what's sort of the, the, the current state of the art in practice? Uh, so has this uh, sort of moved into practice? The, um, the chemical mimics of insect hormones have been in common use internationally since probably the early 70s. And they continue to be used quite a bit, uh, particularly in areas that are sensitive where you would not want the, the agent to be dangerous because it would be used for instance, in cisterns in Malaysia. Uh, so you would not want to put an insecticide into drinking water that could be dangerous. So it's very good there. It's used in cowlicks. It's used in pet shampoos. So they have fairly wide use. 
it's not used so much in field and row crops because we designed these chemicals during the time of Fraser Carson. And we designed them to be very, very unstable in the environment. So they are often too unstable to be used in, in the field. But they are, for example, used on tobacco uh, because the, this would then kill the insects that eat tobacco during storage before they become cigarettes and cigars. Uh, but but the, the the novelty is is really sort of the um, how the chemical is introduced into the insect, right? So so the viral aspects of it that is that's really the novelty, right? Yeah. So the the viral technology we started about 1980 and worked on for two years, um, and it really required the technology that that developed then. We had to be able to sequence peptides in very small amounts, purify peptides, having only tiny amounts of venom that we would melt from the scorpion. And then the ability to synthesize the gene, the ability to transfer that gene into the virus and grow the virus in the laboratory. And then it doesn't sound like it's very important, whether it's drugs or pesticides, the ability to formulate that so that the virus would be protected from light and oxygen in the field. And so these were actually used in, in cotton entomology in competition with classical pesticides. And they proved to be more economical, and they also didn't kill the natural enemies. Yeah, so, so as we get better at this, Bruce, I mean, we're going to be very efficient in potentially removing some classes of insects, let's say. I don't know much about this. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally speculating. Um, I, would bet, I would bet on the insects, Jill. Jill. Um, they are remarkably adaptable. They evolve quickly. They've got huge genetic diversity. And actually, if even if we were able to take out one pest species, I would expect another pest species would expand the range. So I think the best that we can really hope for is to, to really control the animals. Now, there's some genetic approaches from mosquito control in, in Africa, for example, that are looking very promising. But I, I doubt that we completely eliminate a species. Yeah, I mean, it would be beautiful if you can eliminate disease-carrying insects yes. and replace them with um, you know, similar level of diversity but not the not the toxic effect, toxic yeah. effects on the environment, right? And, and so that's looking better under particularly under the auspices of the Gates Foundation. There's some approaches to genetic insect control that were theoretical when I was an undergraduate and were very close to practical now that I'm an old guy. Yeah, I mean it's just a really beautiful thing. So if you um so there's sort of a therapeutic index for the whole population, so to speak, right? So if you, if you say, you know, we're going to remove the toxic effects of species programmatically uh, by design, but we keep the diversity <laughs> uh, so that, you know, that the system works beautifully, right? Uh, I think we are... Do you think we are reaching that sort of a situation that we can take out the bad things and, and, and leave the diversity pretty well unaffected? That's been discussed a long time, that 
assuming we have the power, do we have the right to eliminate an entire species? Um, I used to teach a class on ethics and biotechnology. And to me, it seemed like not such a bad idea. Um, but then I brought up the idea that once we've eliminated the species, it might be very hard to bring back. And suddenly I had a debate from several students in the class who were from Central America and pointed out that the disease problems that they had in a tropical ecosystem from mosquito-borne diseases were very immediate, that their families had suffered from malaria, from dengue, and, and other diseases. So they were all for eliminating mosquitoes entirely. So yeah. in California, there are occasional pests, and sometimes we get a little encephalitis. But in many areas of the world, as you know, it's it's absolutely devastating. It's absolutely devastating. It's um, but I, I I remember reading something, Bruce, that we have some technology that we can re-engineer the the mosquitoes not right. to carry malaria issues, right? Uh, so is yeah. that already practical? Is that already out there? And that's that's improving, and we seem to have fewer ethical problems eliminating a pathogen like the coronavirus, the smallpox, or polio, than we do eliminating a mosquito or a tick. I guess it's, it's uh, sort of very centric that if something is large and it crawls and moves around, we're nervous about eliminating it, but we're very happy to eliminate a, a pathogen. And I'd be very happy eliminating several pathogens. Yeah, I mean, malaria is has been a big problem, uh, especially for the developing world. Yeah. Uh, we just recently got a malaria vaccine. Um, I know the pharmaceutical companies have been working on it for 50 years. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's, a, it's a huge problem for the developing world. Um, and so there are alternative ways to tackle the problem. I think that's always always a good thing. And we also have problems of, of cost and the ability to distribute I mean, a vaccine in developing countries. And we, of course, see this in Europe and the U.S. now with, with COVID, that we have, in spite of having the tools, we have not been very effective at moving in early and, and blocking replication of the virus. Yeah, so this is this my, one of my pet peeves, Bruce. Uh, so it's a little bit of a tangent, but I want to get your perspective on this. So. COVID-19, um, we can get Connecticut and New Jersey vaccinated pretty highly. But the grand scheme of things, if if there are you know 1.4 billion people in India not getting vaccinated, we're going to That's get flying around the world. So it doesn't really matter if you have localized compliance. We need sort of a worldwide compliance uh, to, to take care of this problem, right? I think we all we all agree, and we we've actually seen this in insect resistance to insecticide. If the resistance developed in Egypt, it won't be long until it's in Georgia, and the the viruses will be the same. When I lived in Australia, there was an outbreak of a coronavirus among cavers. My boys and I like going into caves. The Australian government moved very quickly, and they. They pretty much stopped it within a matter of months. We might have been able to do that with COVID if we had been able to move very quickly. 
maybe it was just too much virus. But the alternative to that is if we move slowly in a haphazard way, um, even if we're not altruistic, we'll find that countries that do have poor public health and poor vaccinations will be an incubation period or an incubation spot to develop new viruses that then become resistant. So we were very lucky with polio smallpox to be able to get on top of the virus so much that they really haven't made a comeback. But I don't know if we'll be doing that with COVID or not. Yeah, it doesn't look like to me, Bruce, you know, it's a specific Um We need knowledgeable leaders in large countries um, to move, as you said, fast enough to quell a threat like this. But unfortunately, in the in the status quo, we did not have knowledgeable leaders in large countries. We may have had some uh, really good leaders in small countries like New Zealand or South Korea, but that doesn't solve the problem, right? Um, that that is uh, that is issue, I think. My my son. Um works in Hollywood and he, when the movie industry shut down here, he got a job in New Zealand. And he said it was so wonderful for that year. He did not wear a mask and so on. Getting into New Zealand was somewhat draconian, but as he said, the cost was well worth it. Yeah, I mean, it's from a policy perspective, I feel, it, it, you know, I don't know, there are two things here. One is a scale problem. It's, it's always easy to manage 8 million people or 7 million people. It's a lot more difficult at 300 million or 1 billion, right? uh, especially if you have a patchwork of countries within countries, and US and India are good examples of this. And you know every state has its own policies, so you don't really, you can't really control that. And, uh, and for the world, it's a huge problem because if these large countries are unable to control disease spread, it doesn't matter what small countries do. It, it ultimately filters back in there. Germany, I, I, I was reading some data. Uh, Germany's infection rate today is higher than what it was at the peak of the pandemic last year. Um, That's really sad. <laughs> so, so, so I want to go into another area um, that your lab is doing a lot of work in. That is uh, mammalian enzymology. Uh, evaluation of the risk of foreign compounds depends upon understanding the mechanism of their degradation uh, hydrolytic enzymes, you say, such as epoxide hydrolysis or uh, estresis. And I can pronounce all of this, Bruce. Um, <laughs> Uh, you still protect us against uh, many, many environmental chemicals, and some of them also have biological functions. So, so just define what you mean by mammalian enzymology, and and we'll go from there. Well, we we enzymes are catalysts, like a catalytic converter. Only the enzymes are biology and not uh, metals. So they speed up reactions, and we live with enzymes. So Uncle Linus Pauling, actually the year I was born in 1947, came up with the idea that if you could block, if you could mimic a transition state along a reaction coordinate with any, with any catalyst, catalytic converter uh, or an enzyme, you could kill it. 
So what my lab has done pretty much my whole career is to look at key enzymes in developmental biology and ask, can we design something to kill that enzyme? Which sounds very insidious. But if we kill the right enzyme in insects, we can control an insect pest. And so that's what we've done with transition state mimics and enzymes. In mammals, we found a, an enzyme that degrades a group of compounds that block our, our resolve inflammation. So a lot of our diseases are inflammatory based, you know, headaches, colds, aspects of cancer. And Even so Alzheimer's, some say. Sorry? Even Alzheimer's, some Alzheimer's. say. So we've, we've run several Alzheimer's studies and by blocking this enzyme in mice with Alzheimer's, which is very different than humans with Alzheimer's, we can block the progression of disease and even reverse it. Now, whether this can be translated into human CNS disease remains to be seen. Yeah, inflammation is such an interesting thing. I was talking to my daughter who is going through residency <laughs> program now. Uh, you know, I was asking her, I, I don't know much about this. I worked for a pharmaceutical company for a little while, but um, so in, if inflammation is sort of, you know, the body's uh, raising a red flag that there is a problem here, come solve it for me. Yeah. If we quell inflammation, would it have some negative effects? So I, I think this is, this is a fairy tale. So take me if it gets too wild. But if we think of our evolution, and early in evolution, we did not have <clears throat> hot chicken soup with rice. If we got sick, there was nobody to take care of us. If we didn't get well quickly, we died. If we were injured in a hunt and got our arm infected, if we didn't stop that infection quickly, we were dead. And so we developed an immune system that would attack an inflammation very, very quickly, whether it's bacterial, fungal, virus. And we were willing, say, to take, you know, accept 10% mortality of our immune system killing us in order to survive 90% of the time. Well, a 10% mortality, is we couldn't do any better, it was probably acceptable hundreds of years ago. But you think of 10% mortality <coughs> or a teenager who cuts his leg playing basketball. That's, that's pretty terrible. Yeah. And I think a concept came, has come out recently that inflammation is an active process where we have an insult. An insult could be a cut. It could be an area that is inflamed in Alzheimer's disease. It could be a viral infection or bacterial infection. And so we turn on inflammation very strongly. And that gets rid of the problem, we hope. But if we don't then get rid of inflammation, it will kill us. And we see this in something called ARDS or sepsis. A lot of the COVID deaths are from our immune system killing the coronavirus so well it kills us along with it and so we have an active increase in inflammation 
but we also have an active process to turn it back down and modulate it. It's like we have two dials, increase inflammation and decrease inflammation. If we don't decrease inflammation correctly, in the long term, we get arthritis, we get Parkinson's, uh, we get uh, Alzheimer's. But if we don't turn it on fast enough, we get a fatal infection and die. So what we've been working on is how to control the, the active resolution of inflammation to take us back to a steady state where we're all ready to go if we get a viral infection, but we're not increasing our baseline inflammatory level. But if we do, then that leads to arthritis. Uh, it leads to Sjogren's syndrome, a whole variety of inflammatory chronic diseases. Yeah, this is so fascinating, Bruce. Uh, uh, without knowing anything about it, I'm getting excited about this. So. <laughs> So if, if uh, inflammation is sort of a marker, say there's something wrong here, let's go mend it, and body attempts to do that, uh, but, but if it stays longer, then it has deleterious effects on a variety of things. So this is sort of a timing optimization problem, right, uh, for the body. So, so we want the marker so that we can focus on it, but we don't want the market to stay on post problem solving, which which ultimately creates uh, huge problems, right? And so, so so this is the this is the issue, right? Can we can we sort of timing optimize inflammation in some way? Is that is that how you think about it? Uh, yeah, and one of the things that, that we're doing, many labs are doing is trying to come up with blood and other biomarkers of inflammation so that we can actually say quantitatively how inflamed any one individual is and then either try to increase the inflammation if a disease, for example, is getting out of hand or decrease the inflammation if, for example, the inflammation is leading to arthritic joints uh, or sore muscles. So having, having good biomarkers is one key step is in trying to address both chronic inflammation, where we have too much inflammation for too long, and other inflammatory diseases where our immune system does not respond quickly enough to an infection with a fungus or a bacteria. Yeah, so going back to COVID-19 issue that we have seen, um, can we... Uh, so are we to a point that we can determine, I don't know what the right term would be, uh, some sort of an inflammation level in the body, uh, the, the two dials that you talked about to, to turn it down or turn it up, are we to a point we can determine how to do that in, a, in an optimum way? I don't think optimal, but an example would be dexamethasone. This is a steroid. Steroids are wonderful drugs except they come with really terrible side effects with long-term use or overuse. So it was pretty obvious early in the, in the uh, epidemic that a lot of patients were dying from too much inflammation. It's often called a cytokine storm or a prostaglandin storm, and that we needed to turn that down. Of course, if we turn it down too soon, 
patient dies of the virus. We turn it down too late. The patient may die of something called ARDS or sepsis where your lungs fill with fluid. So with dexamethasone, it mounts standard of care in the hospitals in the US. And yet the first two trials with dexamethasone actually killed patients because they turned it on too soon and the virus then got out of hand. And so we had to hit the right window. So now probably dexamethasone still kills people. And it saves far more people than it hurts. And as we get better biomarkers, as physicians get better at treating, then they'll be better at, at timing the use of dexamethasone. Now, what we're trying to do in my lab and a lot of other labs is to say dexamethasone and other steroids are great tools, but they're sledgehammers. Can we find something that is more subtle in turning down the inflammation uh, as soon as the virus is under control? so that we don't end up with people with sepsis and adult respiratory distress syndrome. Yeah. I think we have to have biomarkers. Uh, right. So the physicians learn to look at the patient as a whole, and then the physician is informed by biochemical markers from the blood or respiratory area. Yeah, again, you know, uh, I don't know much about this, but I'm thinking, you know, some sort of sustained or external release formulation that logic built into the pill um, does the sort of the right right timing, you know, in terms of releasing the medication could be quite interesting here, right? Well, that's a nice idea. Although, you know, for now, I think having really good physicians that understand the disease who are not overworked and overstressed, it's probably what's going to happen first. Yeah. So they have a lot of tools and new tools are coming online. So we're working on a drug that uh, is an inflammation resolving agent rather than an anti-inflammatory like dexamethasone. So I'm, I'm immune suppressed, for example. And if I get COVID, it's a, it's a very, it will be a very unhappy outcome. Um, so if we had an agent that could modulate the inflammation rather than just turn it off, it would be very attractive. And there are a number of labs working on how do we resolve inflammation in contrast to simply having anti-inflammatory like dexamethasone. Yeah, I know that uh, your lab is working on um, uh, COX-2-related yeah. products too, right? So you want to talk a bit about that, uh, pain and inflammation? So the, um, actually, we, we found this enzyme studying insects and asking how the caterpillars turn into butterflies. And then we asked if the enzyme in plants, is it in cows, is it in people? And it is, but what does it do? And in plants, we don't know. It turns out in us, that it controls a new branch of something called the arachidonic cascade. So aspirin, ibuprofen, a number of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories work on a pathway in the arachidonic cascade that turns on inflammation. It says something's wrong. We've got an infection. We've got a broken bone. We need to be inflamed quickly. 
So it turns on COX, which makes things called prostaglandins, thromboxane. What we're working on is another branch of the arachidonic cascade. This goes well. We have that infection under control. Let's turn down inflammation. So the cyclooxygenase inhibitors that Merck, Pfizer, and actually Bayer, uh, long, long ago for his father in finding aspirin figured out. These compounds will block the production of prostaglandins by an enzyme called cyclooxygenase. And so they're absolutely wonderful drug. But they also come with the dark side, as you know, that if we take too much aspirin, we can get gastrointestinal erosion, um, leading to ulcers. We take too much of Celebrex, or particularly Vioxx, we can have cardiovascular complications. So what we're trying to do is to come up with a drug that will not turn off inflammation, but turn down inflammation. So this compound actually works upstream of cyclogenase to turn down prostaglandin synthase and cyclooxygenase at the transcriptional translational level, so way upstream, and then turn it down so that uh, we can resolve inflammation. So the anti-inflammatories like aspirin then would synergize and work well with inflammation resolving agents. So we're looking in horses and dogs and we're in clinical trials in humans, both using these compounds alone and combining them with um, non-steroidals like aspirin and ibuprofen. And we're able to block the side effects, say the GI side effects. Yeah, it seems like a very interesting direction. So turn down inflammation, not turn it off. And, and that goes to sort of the optimization that we were talking about before. And um, so, so you think ultimately this will be some sort of a combination, combination product that does multiple things? I, th I think so. We're, um, I'm mainly at a university, but we have a small company working on that. And it's not exactly a Pfizer. So we have to focus, and our focus is neuropathic pain and inflammatory pain. And we're trying to rescue the compounds by themselves. But the actual use that we've seen in experimental animals at its best is to combine them with a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory to eliminate the side of, bad side effects of aspirin and ibuprofen and to synergize with the good effects. So what synergism means is, is two and two equals six. So if we use milligrams of aspirin, two milligrams of our drug together, they equal six milligrams of pain relief. Um, so, so another idea that you have um, in the lab is um, uh, you say it's metabolomics and mass spectrometry. So lipid analytical cores and mass spectrometry lab located. Uh, so 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 what is coming out of that that uh, process? So metabolomics is a. I heard a guy say, well, if, if the public can't pronounce it and you can't spell it, you probably shouldn't use the word. <laughs> but it's in wide use that we have transcription, transcriptomics yeah. where we monitor RNA levels. Um, 
we have proteomics where we monitor protein levels. But if we look at the gene, the message, the protein, and then biology, it's metabolomics, the metabolites that are between the protein and do we feel good or not. So what we're doing is we are using modern mass spectrometry to look at a whole bunch of metabolites. And this is something where we started out, we can look at four metabolites and it slowly increases. And there are two big ways to do metabolomics. One is to use an instrument that looks at many, many things. And you tend to look at products that are, as I jokingly tell my colleagues, high abundance and low significance. But the nice thing is they can look at an awful lot of different compounds, often in a non-quantitative way. What we're doing is looking at products that are very low abundance, but very high significance, like the hormones that control your body, the neurotransmitters. And in this case, what are called the actosinoids that come from the arachidonic cascade. So now we look in a very quantitative fashion at about 200 different icosinoids. These icosinoids control pain, they control childbirth, uh, they control blood pressure, they control GI mobility. So they're compounds that come from a, a lipid and fat that controls many aspects of our biology. And the most commonly used drugs in the world are non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. One drug accounts for about 75% by mass of the world's drugs. This is diclofenac, which is widely used in India um, as an anti-inflammatory. So we're able then to trace what does diclofenac, what does aspirin, what does ibuprofen do in your body with regard to these um, icosinoid compounds. And then from that, predict that they will have side effects or beneficial effects. And by doing this in COVID patients, we're able to get an awful lot of insight why some COVID patients are sick and then recover. Some COVID patients go into adult respiratory distress syndrome and sepsis and either get long COVID or die. And two biomarkers out of this arachidonic cascade really do predict in humans uh, which way COVID will go. Wow, that is that that would be a beautiful test if we can determine. So so what's the significance, Bruce, you know, more at a higher level, this low abundance, high significance chemicals? Um, well, that's just in a way a joke. All of it is very important. So it's important to look at our blood and ask do we have high blood glucose. Glucose is a high abundance chemical, and it tells us a lot about our, our diabetic status, about our diet. So we can look at these, with the technology we have, we can look at thousands of these chemicals. And computationally, we're getting better in interpreting these. So I, long ago, when I was a baby, I worked in a lab with Linus Pop, and his idea was to look at a breath sample and to be able to diagnose your disease. Well, he was a few decades ahead of his time, but he was right on target. And increasingly, we will go beyond the Chem 20 panel, that one blood sample you get when you give your doctor, towards monitoring many, many things. Um, some of them will be broad samples like 
general global metabolomics, where we try to look at all the abundant chemicals in your blood. And others will be like what we're working on, to work just at the, look just at the hormones, to look at insulin, estrogen, testosterone, aldosterone, or in case of the prostaglandins, there's 200 lipids that mediate our health and to be able to precise, more precisely diagnose patients and predict the treatments better. Yeah. You know, from a system perspective, it, it's kind of sort of interesting. Um, the human is a bundle of noises <laughs> and uh, there, there are a few things that really make a huge difference to the end outcome. And uh, they, they seem to be sort of hidden in some ways. You know? the uh, it's a, always a problem. <laughs> actually, going back to, to, to Linus Pauling, was actually at the USDA lab where the people first invented capillary GC. And the problem he ran into, he could tell, tell if you're going to become a diabetic. He could also tell if you had a scotch a week ago. And the problem he had was separating signal from noise. Boys are different than girls. People who eat peanut butter are different than people who eat jelly sandwiches. And to pick out the key factors that determine your health against a huge background of metabolites was really, really hard. And it remains hard today. Yeah. And if you look at it from a healthcare perspective, we are spending $4.5 trillion uh, in the U.S. alone for, for healthcare spending. And if you sort of look at the 4.5 trillion, you know, there's type 2 diabetes, say there's hypertension um, to, to major things, there's pain and inflammation, which is a huge thing. So there, there are a few things that is actually, you know, sort of eating into that 4.5 trillion. Um, and so, you know, if, if you were to look at the, the sort of the the macro spend, and if we can mitigate spending some way, I think pain and mitigate pain and inflammation is a big part of that, right? Yes, it's huge, and it's huge internationally. There's a lot of diseases. The real, the really big disease would be starvation, and then we get lots of niasis, malaria, sleeping, sleeping sickness. The big diseases affect people without much money and resource, which is the problem you were alluding to earlier. But the hope is that whether we're working on cancer or working on uh, canine arthritis, we're going to find things that are globally useful, not just on that one disease. Yeah, I mean, so I don't know much about this, Lewis, but I want to, so starvation, as you mentioned, um, if you look at, you know, sort of, I looked at some data from India, for example, and the the excess mortality in the slums uh, of India was lower than the wealthy suburbs. Um, and so, so, so do you see, how, how do you see starvation playing a role? And I'm, I'm thinking COVID-19 specifically here. Do you see a connection in some way? We, we have we have inadequate energy diets, which can be terrible, as we see now in parts of Africa. Simply not enough calories to survive. We have problems where there it's not a balanced diet. 
and we can see this in, in areas where they don't have a diverse protein. And so you end up with individual amino acids leading to severe disease. But we also can have, I was talking to a group last night, <coughs> problems of too much food of the wrong kind too soon. And so we have the diseases of affluence. And these often occur, like in the United States, where we have maybe too many supersized soft drinks and hamburgers. <laughs> but we can also have it in a, in a tragic situation where a population has been on the edge of starvation and then suddenly they reach the middle class. And food is a sign of affluence as well as nutrition. And they eat too much of the wrong kind of food and a disease like gout that was almost unheard of suddenly becomes rampant. Or disease like diabetes becomes rampant. So we have a we have a lot of nutritional problems in the world. Yeah. So, so do you, would you consider food sort of an inflammation causing thing? I mean, the, the reason I'm asking is we have one in ten. Uh, the latest um, statistic I saw was one in ten of world population is diabetic, and it's expected to go to one in eight. And diabetes could be considered, you know, a problem emanating from food, you know, uh, excess food, let's say. Um, is there an information connection there someday? Certainly there is. <coughs> now, this, sounds, this is probably disturbing to some of your listeners, but my surgeon friends complain that they work on a person who's obese that the odor of the rancid fat is very hard for the surgeons to take. So our fat becomes rancid if we have too much of it. And that rancidity is inflammation because your body is then initiating an inflammatory response against the compounds that come from peroxidized fatty acids. And it's the same thing that can occur in poorly vascularized fat tissue that um, can happen if you leave a piece of meat out on the springboard too long. So that is a very serious problem. And so, so in conclusion, uh, Bruce, if you look forward a few years, uh, I know that you're doing a lot of interesting research in this area. Um, I'm really fascinated by this idea that if we can modulate information optimally, <laughs> there's a lot of beneficial effects on the body. Um, but I don't know how far we are from that uh, through chemical agents. Um, do you see non-chemical agents uh, doing anything like that? Well, every, everything that we can do with a small molecule, we can do with a protein, with a message, and so on. Um, and those, those technologies are moving quickly. I didn't bring up, we worked on things in my lab called nanobodies, which are very tiny engineered nanobodies that are taking over from monoclonals which took over from polyphenols. So there are a lot of technologies that are moving forward in parallel, many of which neither of us know about. So I'm, I'm always optimistic. Um, having worked in pesticide discovery and development and now then human and companion animal pharmacology, um, things move slowly. 
which isn't a bad thing because we don't want to make a mistake. But moving through the regulatory system is very hard. Um, the, not only the discovery, but also the development of the compound is very slow and very expensive because we don't we don't want another another thalidomide. So we do have these these problems. I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. So our compound really will, in a variety of different disease states, modulate inflammation. It will not turn it off, but it will take a chronic high, high level of inflammation and you can dial it back to a moderate level of inflammation that will protect you from pathogens, but is not causing joint pain and, and so on. So I'm, I am very optimistic and looking at pain is a terrible problem, uh, but even in intractable pain, not just ours, but there are a number of things to give hope on the horizon that we'll be able to modulate unwanted pain. Um, so things are getting better. And it's in phase one, is it? Yes, we're, we're, we're in phase one. Yeah. So this is a, just a human safety test, not a human efficacy test. But we have been able to cure fatal inflammation in horses, uh, cure arthritis inflammation in dogs and cats, in addition to mice and rats. So there's there's hope that we'll be able to translate our mouse and rat rat work, not in only into horses and dogs and cats, but also into humans. Yeah, I mean the beauty is that inflammation reduction is sort of a platform technology. Uh, it influences so many different diseases. And as you mentioned, you know, I don't know the. I just will say this uh, for the for the benefit of everybody. It takes about 15 years for an idea to get to market. Um, five years in discovery, 10 years in development. Uh, it, it's really a long, long, long process before we. Just waiting. You know, we found this enzyme just before Christmas, 1969. <laughs> with another deal, Sarjeet killed it. So it's not it's not a fast process. Right, right. Excellent. Excellent, Bruce. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. Oh, and oh, uh, really fun, Jill. And happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.